A.D. And the story is told about him. His name is Victor. And he used to sneak out into the night to visit the afflicted and confirm the weak. Remember, this was a time where Christians were heavily persecuted in 303, 200 and some years or so after the book of Jude that we're going to be back in this morning. So Victor would sneak out at night because it wasn't safe to minister during the day. He was eventually caught, bound, and dragged through the streets at Emperor Maximian's order. He was mocked by an enraged populace as he was being drugged through the streets. His courage in the face of all this was deemed obstinance by the Roman authorities. So he was racked and tortured and confined to a dungeon where God then used him to convert three of his, his jailers to Christ, and they were subsequently beheaded. So Victor was again racked and tortured and beaten and sent to prison. A third time then, he was examined concerning his religion, what he conserved in his principles. A small altar was brought into him where he was commanded to offer incense, incense on it in front of the Roman emperor. Victor walked up and approached that pagan altar and he kicked it over. The emperor then ordered that his foot got cut off and then he was ground to pieces in a stone mill. If even a Frenchman could be that brave, this is the spirit of God, right? I didn't mean to make a martyr story a joke, but. Today we're going to see how Jude would have us contend for the faith. The faith that was once for all handed down to the saints and how we can contend without being contentious. Let's pray and let's go to God's word. Gracious Lord, thank you this morning for the reminder that we can come into your presence because of the provision that you made for us through the sacrifice of Christ. Um, Lord, we praise you for that this morning. We're not worthy to come here and worship you. We're not worthy to come here and read your word and learn from it together. Um, Lord, thank you for giving us what we don't deserve. Um, Lord, I pray this morning you would let us see um, new insights from your word. Um, Lord, would you speak here through your word. We love you. We offer this time to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, we left off last time, Jude 15. So go to the middle of Jude or a little beyond the middle of Jude. We're going to pick up today at the end of Jude's commentary before this apocalyptic, this end time style warning that he gave us out of the book of First Enoch, this book from Jewish tradition. We're going to pick up with his commentary on everything he just said about the false teachers and the ungodly sinners, etc. Pick up with me in verse 16. Let's read. These are the grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Stop there. Not a lot that can be said about that verse. I don't think it kind of speaks for itself. The grumblers, sort of the cynics who find fault in everything. But then they tickle our ears by telling us what we want to hear. Arrogantly putting their own ideas and their own principles above the word of God. And they're manipulating people for their own benefit. Right? This is the false teachers he's been speaking about for the majority of 15 verses. But he's going to transition now from this ancient warning about God's coming judgment for these kind of people 
and he's going to transition into a contemporary warning for his original audience. Let's read together verses 17 through 19. Jude says, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. I think a takeaway from, from these verses this morning is that we are to remember Jesus' teaching by two things, by unifying around truth and by fostering a biblical worldview. Unifying around truth, fostering a biblical worldview. First, before we get into that, look, I want to just notice for a second this word beloved. It's used a few times in Jude, I think four. And that word, you could probably do a whole sermon on just the meaning of that word. But just notice this beloved, hearkening back to the early verses where he says, beloved um, by God the Father, wrapped in the love of God the Father, one translation has it. This is a beautiful address he uses to address believers in the church. So there's also this term, mockers and scoffers in here. That's kind of a Bible term, right, that reminds us. It would clearly remind his first audience of wisdom literature, very reminiscent of things in Psalm and Proverbs. Here's a couple of them. Psalm 1-1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Proverbs 1.22 says, How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Peter, John, and Paul all warned about false teachers that were going to come into the church. If you just want to jot down, we won't go there this morning, but 2 Peter 2 and 3, 1 John chapter 4, 2 Timothy 3, are just really good examples of the apostles decrying the existence of false teaching in the very, very early church in the first century. But the apostles were confirming what Jesus said. Jesus said in Matthew 7, starting at verse 15, he said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. This is kind of the message of the beginning of Jude that we talked about last week. This is the words of Jesus told through the apostles. Verse 19, Jude says, these are the ones, he uses that word over and over again, these, to refer to these false teachers. These are the ones that cause divisions, they're worldly-minded, and they lack the spirit. Those three things he says of the false teachers here. We're commanded in the church to pursue unity. Right? That's a serious calling that we have as his children. But there's a little warning in here, I think, about letting a godly desire for unity cloud our judgment. This is how, I think, so many churches with good intentions end, end up abandoning the faith. The point here, I think, when Jude says that the false teachers are the ones causing divisions, is just that. We'll get to that in a second. Let's read from Paul. Paul says something about this in Romans 16, 17. Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren... Keep your eye on those who, calls, who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned. Turn away from them, for such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. 
It's a similar caution, a similar warning. Have you ever been called divisive or accused of being divisive? Because you were standing on biblical truth? It's easy for us to be divisive because we're all sinners. But if you're trying to be, if we're trying to be humble and contrite, when we go to the word and we're relying on truth, not a truth, not your truth, not my truth, the truth, this is the meaning of the faith once for all handed down to the saints that we read about last week that Jude's talking about here. If we rely on that, that will never be divisive. Rejecting the truth that God's revealed to us will be divisive. Rebelling against it will be divisive in the church every time. The faith, once for all handed down to the saints, unifies the faithful because we unify around truth. We don't just unify for the sake of unity or for the sake of our own feelings. It's easy to get caught up in that with good intentions. We unify around the truth and we acknowledge that it's not about our own preferences. That's something unique to the church. So the second way, after unifying around truth, that we remember Jesus' teaching is by fostering a biblical worldview. This is similar to saying the same thing. But notice the connection here in verse 19, made between lacking the spirit and being worldly-minded. This is said of the false teachers here. So conversely, if we have the spirit, then we're not worldly-minded. This is why we contend by remembering Jesus' teaching and fostering a biblical worldview. We'll talk a little bit more about this in a few minutes. This here at the end of verse 19, this marks the end of Jude's history lesson, right? Remember that Jude told us that we are to contend earnestly for the faith. We're to agonize over it. This is a big deal. It's more important than talking about our common salvation. That's why he wrote the whole letter. Then Jude lets the judgments of God indict the false teachers, right? He doesn't do it himself. He goes back to stories and scripture and lets, and let, lets God's word do the condemning that happens in Jude. There's seven Old Testament examples of rebellion, irreverence, and then leading other people astray that we talked about last time. Then there's a couple of warnings. One, apocalyptic, out of this crazy book of Enoch we talked about last time. That's not even scripture. And then there's one new apostolic warning that we just read. And now Jude's finally going to get, after talking about all this false teaching and how their condemnation is sure, he's going to get to how you contend earnestly. That's what we're going to talk about right now. Jude gets to how we're going to contend earnestly. And his tone sort of changes a little bit at this point because he's talking to his beloved, to God's beloved. Pick up with me in verse 20. Let's read 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. There's four participles in here with one imperative. I'm not a grammar guy, let alone a Greek grammar, gra grammar guy, but I read that from somebody who was and looked into it. And it's like, okay, this is interesting. Trying to pull out what Jude's getting at here, what the emphasis is. So all of these are in the present tense. The building, the praying, the waiting, these are part of participles. You can tell by the ing at the end, right? One of them is not a participle in English, the keep, keep yourselves. The ing's left off to indicate that this was a command in the original grammar. So grammatically, all these participles depend on that one command, keep yourself in the love of God. Jude's telling us here in verses 20 to 21 how to prepare for battle, and he starts by saying keep yourselves in the love of God. 
We remember back from verse 1 that we're called by the Spirit, we're beloved of God, and we're kept for Jesus Christ. Note again, here in 20 and 21, that full trinity, full triune God, all the persons of the Godhead are active in these verses. Praying in the Spirit, keeping yourself in God's love, and waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. But in what sense are we supposed to keep ourselves in the love of God? We'll talk about that for a couple minutes. I think that we are to keep ourselves for Christ and from the world. We can keep ourselves in the love of God by keeping, us, keeping ourselves for Christ and from the world. The definition of the word keep is to attend carefully or to take care of. Some translations actually use the word maintain in here instead of keep. Again, it's the same word used back in verse 1, kept for Jesus Christ. I think it helps to remember the words of Jesus on this point. Jesus said in John chapter 15, he said, Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. The context of this verse in, in John 15 is the whole, Jesus is the vine, we're the branches, we can't do anything apart from him thing, right? And Jesus is saying, this is how you abide, this is how you stay in my love, which is the Father's love. Keep my commandments. So keeping ourselves in the love of God is abiding by the love that Jesus had, has inside the triune Godhead. We do this by obeying Jesus' commands. It's a simple way. We know and understand to do this. Turns out that this word keeping is used, I think, five times in Jude. I said already it was used in verse 1. It's, it's used here. It was used in verse 6. Remember, we talked about last week the angels not keeping their proper abode. That word keeping, same word. So God keeps them in chains until the final judgment. Keeps, same word. In verse 13, that word is used to talk about false teachers who were called Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been kept forever. That same word keep is used in there. So what we keep ourselves from, I think, is also an element of keeping ourselves in the love of God. It's not just what we keep ourselves for, it's what we keep ourselves from. I think that's significant. So we can keep ourselves in the love of God by keeping ourselves for Christ and from the world. From anything, really, that might encourage us to... to entertain our own nature and be disobedient and self-centered. So how do we do this? How do we do this keeping? Three things he gives us in here. These are the IMG words. Building, praying, waiting. Building, praying, and waiting. Notice that all these are plural. First of all, they're directed at the church, at the community of believers, not just as individual Christians. They're directed at each of us, but in the context of, of being the church. So we build ourselves up on our most holy faith. We build ourselves up by knowing it and by living in light of it, actually living like we believe it. And we encourage each other to think and live and to act biblically. This is what this means. The world should seem really different to us as a result of doing that. That's the biblical worldview thing. Things like encouraging each other in study, Bible studies, Sunday school, ministering together, shine, juntos, wood ministry, the thousands of ways that we encourage each other, and we do it on the basis of God's word. That's building ourselves up on our most holy faith, I think. And it's significant that Jude would tell us this is a, 
an important part of contending for the faith, which we just think about arguing and having right doctrine, at least I do. So it's good for us, I think, to take thought of how we spur one another on to love and good works. The author of Hebrews uses those words. So we build ourselves up. Second thing here, keeping ourselves in the love of God, is that we pray in the Spirit. Pray in the Spirit. Remember Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says famously to pray without ceasing or to pray constantly is the word in some translations. I remember from a couple years ago a study where we learned that that word was the same word that was used in Greek to refer to a persistent cough. And I thought that connection was super weird at the time. But it's kind of been useful for me the last couple of weeks. I've had a cold. I've had a persistent cough that didn't go away when the cold left. So I'm like constantly coughing. And it's allergy season. I'm not the only one constantly coughing. This is kind of a, this has been a good reminder to me that we don't pray enough, right? I don't know how right it is to make that connection between those two words. It's the same word. There's a story about Hudson Taylor. He was a well-known missionary to China. And he commented on how difficult it was to maintain regular prayerful Bible study. He said, Satan will always find you something to do when you ought to be occupied with that, even if it's only arranging a window blind. His example of just a trivial thing to distract us. How easy. We're distracted by trivial things and we don't make time to just pray and listen to God. How about spending too much time reading the news? Do you spend more time reading the news than you do praying? I do. A lot of time. Most of the time. There's a book written about Hudson Taylor. Some of his, companion, some of his companions were recalling some stories about him, and I'm going to read you this section from the book, talking about how he found time to contend. He knew that it was vital. Well do those traveling with him, month after month in northern China, remember his practice. Often, with only one large room for sleeping, they would screen off a corner for him and another for themselves with curtains of some sort. And then, after sleep at last had brought a measure of quiet, they'd hear a match struck. They'd see a flicker of candlelight, which told them that Mr. Taylor however weary, was poring over the little Bible and the two volumes that he always had at hand. From 2 to 4 a.m. was the time he usually gave to prayer, a time when he could be most sure of being undisturbed to wait on God. That flicker of candlelight has meant more to them than everything they've ever read or heard about secret prayer. It meant reality, not preaching, but practice. If you don't do something like that, and I don't, aren't you curious what you're missing? Finally, in this section, we see that we should wait anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the many places in Jude where he directs our attention forward to the end, to the consummation of all things. A lot of his quoting apocalyptic uh, scripture and tradition was doing exactly that. I think anticipate is a, is a good word here, a better word. Some translations use it. We're supposed to build ourselves up by anticipating. We're supposed to keep ourselves in the love of God by anticipating our eternal future with Christ. This just means, for me, keeping an eternal perspective on things, which puts everything else in perspective. We should never forget what we have in Christ and what it means in the end, what this means. This is our hope, right? 
Building, praying, waiting, I think we'll have difficulty pursuing any of this stuff if we don't keep an eternal perspective, if we're just concerned with here and now. There's a story about a Roman legion called the Theban Legion. From They were actually Egyptians that were sent to the war in Gaul under these same emperors uh, that were around persecuting Victor, the early, early story I told. There was 6,666 soldiers in this legion, all of whom were said to be Christians. Once they were in Gaul, France, they were commanded by their superiors to participate in a pagan ritual. And they were supposed to swear that they would fight to eliminate Christianity in Gaul because it's just viewed as an enemy of the state. The entire legion, it, it is said, refused to participate. So as punishment, they were decimated, literally decimated. Where that word comes from means you take every 10th soldier, every 10th man, and you kill them. That's what it means to be decimated. So they were decimated. One in 10 were killed. They remained steadfast, though. Then they were decimated again. One in 10 again were, were killed. These were men with an eternal perspective. Ultimately, the entire legion was executed, it said, by Rome. But we tell stories about them to this day because of their faith and because of their perspective. Let's go together now back to Jude and pick up in verse 22. Let's read verse 22 and 23 together. Jude's finally getting to the meat in these two verses. He says, And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now that Jude finally gets to how to contend, how to struggle, how to fight, how to agonize over the faith once for all handed down to the saints, we finally get there. And this is what Jude says. He says, have mercy. Not what I would have thought of saying at this point. So how to contend? We engage, we don't dismiss. How to contend for truth? We engage, we don't dismiss. Mercy. I guess, I guess it could be defined as compassionate forbearance shown towards an offender. What's forbearance? That's just withholding something that they justly deserve. That's what mercy is. If we speak in the sense of the mercy of God, rightly, this is what the Holy Spirit through Jude is telling us to have. For three groups of people, Jude saw it as important to adjust our tactics based on who the audience is. And he groups, he, he articulates three groups now, three types of people that were to contend differently with in some way. Here's who I think the types of people are. There's those who are doubting in the church. That's the first type. Second type, I think, is non-believers in the church. Third type is enemies, the ungodly. Remember how many times Jude used ungodly from last week? So the first type, those who are doubting, how are we supposed to deal with those who are doubting? Well, Jude says we're supposed to engage them with mercy. This is maybe the easiest one of the three. Doubting is not an uncommon thing, nor is it necessarily bad, depending on what you do with the doubt. So we're supposed to engage those in the body of Christ, especially, who are doubting. We're supposed to engage them with mercy and understanding and patience and love. Interesting aside, 
here again, this word translated doubt is the same word that was translated disputing back in, in verse 9 when they were disputing about the, the devil was disputing about the body of Moses. Again, this is a connection. I don't know how useful it is to make, but I made this connection. So, and here's why. Have you ever encountered somebody who's doubting and they come across as being contentious or skeptical? And how do you respond to that? How do I respond to that? Not in a dismissive way is, I think, the point of Jude here. We shouldn't be so quick to condemn somebody for doubting because harshness drives away honest doubt. Do you ever get questions from folks like, how do you know the Bible's true? Or if God loves us, why would he condemn anyone to suffering? Why do so many bad things happen to good people? Why do so many bad things happen to me, my family? Are you sure that I can't love Jesus and do whatever I want with my body? Questions like this. Or not to respond to those things harshly or dismissively. With this type of person, we're supposed to have patience, Jude is saying. By God's grace, then, we might be in this privileged position of being God's mercy in someone else's life. This is a huge part of what it means to be brothers and sisters in God's family. Look at the connection, a couple words, but actually a couple words back, not a couple verses, just a couple words back to the mercy of our Lord. We love because he first loved us. This is a basic principle, I think, to have mercy on the doubters among us. So second, let's talk about the second group, the second type of person. I think this is unbelievers. This is referring to unbelievers in our midst, not necessarily in the world, but certainly in the context of the church. We're told to save them this group of people, to save them by snatching them from the fire. The imagery here is one of an emergency, right? Snatching them from the fire. The fire is a well-known metaphor in Scripture for God's judgment. It's used right here in Jude, back in verse 7. Since these people need saving, I think the implication is that they're unbelievers and they're among us because that's the context of the whole letter of Jude. This is an urgent picture. Is there a more merciful thing than snatching somebody from the fire if you see somebody in a fire burning? So even though the word mercy is not used with this second group, very clearly I think our response and how we're supposed to contend for the truth with non-believers is to engage with mercy. Sounds kind of familiar. Now mercy doesn't necessarily mean affirmation, right? Real love means speaking for truth, not a truth that we make up but the truth, agonizing over it. This is the whole point of the whole book of Jude. Our culture has, that we live in, has completely conflated love with truth, with affirmation, with acceptance, with celebration. It's totally redefined what that word means. But in reality, affirmation can be the opposite of true love, right? If you're affirming somebody in something that you know is leading to their destruction and you let them do it, how is that... Loving, exactly. I don't, I don't think it is. Another little aside here. For the non-believer, this fire of judgment thing has a little bit different meaning. It's worth taking a minute and talking about that. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul's talking about this. He's using the building as a metaphor, and he's talking about the foundation of the building has to be in Jesus Christ and nothing else. And if you make that foundation in anything else, then it will be revealed with fire, it says. 
Fire tests the quality of everyone's work. If your work's burned up, you yourself, if you're a believer, will be saved, but yet as though through fire, it says in 1 Corinthians. Smoldering and coughing like you barely made it out. All the stuff that's worthless, all the works that you've done that were done with wrong motivations, those are gone. Yeah, you get to survive because of the mercy of God through Christ, but just barely. It's a purifying fire. The fire for non-believers, as it's used in scripture, is one of judgment. You ever seen Schindler's List? Remember the movie Schindler's List? There's an image from that movie um, that I want to remind you of right now. So Oscar Schindler was a German businessman during World War II, and he decided at some point to use all of his influence and all of his power and all of his money as a Nazi businessman to save Jewish people from the, desk, from the death camps by employing them in his factory and basically spending all his resources to get as many Jews as he could working for him for the Nazi war machine and saving them from death. Remember the last scene where he's leaving the factory and all of the 1,100 or so Jews that are alive because of him were all around him? Remember what his response was for that? He, he breaks down. He says, I didn't, I didn't do enough. I could have got more. Remember that? could have got more. And he looks at his car that he's about to get into and drive away, and he says, I got 10 more people. I could have got more. With this car, he looks at his pen, and he says, ah, two more people. Could have got one more person, and I didn't. I think I'm going to feel like that on the last day. People are dying all around us that don't know Christ. They're believing lies, and God puts us here as ministers of his mercy. That's a serious thing. C.T. Studd was a British professional athlete, if you can call cricket professional athlete, but it's a big, it's a big deal to them. He ended up giving away his fortune and moving to Africa and being a missionary the rest of his life. He had this really cool quote that I stumbled into this week. He said, Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Okay, so that brings us to our third type in Jude's progression here of these three categories of, of people or types of people. This is probably the farthest gone, right? This is probably a progressive thing. Jude doesn't overtly identify the group here, but in context, I think it suggests that these three types are, are all inclusive of everybody that we're, we run into, at least in this context. So this includes non-believers. It also includes the ungodly, which is something a little more than just non-belief, I think, the way Jude is using the term. So these are more likely to be hardened sinners. Maybe even the ungodly false teachers who are doing all these ungodly things and all their ungodly ways, in Jude's words. Even them, I think, are included in this category here, this third type. These are the ones that Jude was calling hidden reefs. He uses all these crazy metaphors, talking about God's judgment on these people and how destructive and damaging they are. We have to contend against what they're teaching. Autumn trees without fruit, he calls them, doubly dead, uprooted, useless, clouds without water, whose condemnation is certain based on God's past judgments. How do we contend with unrepentant sinners and mockers, scoffers, people who are our enemy? We engage with mercy, Jude says here. 
I never really appreciated how missional the book of Jude was. I didn't think it was, really, before getting into it and studying it a little bit. A little bit. His prescription for how to contend for the faith against the false teachers isn't to label them and dismiss them. It's to love them and engage them. It's to contend earnestly with mercy. We battle with mercy. But now he's telling us to do so with fear with this group. Why? Let's uh, take a little diversion here on this metaphor here to hate even the garment polluted by the flesh. Zechariah 3, I think, would have come to mind with his first audience. Zechariah 3, we actually quoted from this. We read from this last week, if you remember. It says, then he should, this is, a, this is a messianic prophecy from Zechariah. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to rescue him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not the brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. Joshua's filthy garments here are sin. The Jewish mind would probably jump automatically to what that means in the context of of communion with God. Deuteronomy 23 says, For the Lord your God walks about in the middle of your camp to deliver you and defeat your enemies for you. Therefore your camp should be holy so that he does not see anything indecent among you and turn away. Sin's a problem. In God's sight, temptation is real. Don't let it pollute you. Be careful. This is Jude is saying with this group of people. This isn't licensed to run around labeling and pronouncing judgment, I don't think, and dismissing people. At least there's a balance here, right? I struggle with that, if I'm being honest. But I think contending earnestly means having a little bit less of an us versus them attitude. I think that's what he's saying here. Remember that most of us were once them, too, right? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. This is a famous clobber passage from Scripture because we like to beat people over the head with it. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. We can contend for biblical truth, though, without being contentious. I think there's a plenty of examples. We won't have time to get into them about the us versus them attitude and how Jesus rejects that. There's some scripture that can be taken out of context, I think, to say the opposite, like, for he who is not against us is for us and these sorts of things. This provides some balance to over-applying that. Back to Zechariah 3. In verse 4 here, Zechariah 3, it says, He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. And again he said to him, See, I've taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Here is a picture, a prophetic picture of the Messiah taking away sin. It goes on to speak of the day when the Lord of heaven's armies will remove the iniquity of this land in a day. And on that day, everyone will invite his friend to fellowship under his vine and under his fig tree. Here Jude is affirming that no one's unsavable, I think. Certainly that's the perspective he's telling us to have. 
no matter how filthy your garments are, Christ lived, died, and rose to take away the filthy garments, this picture of sin, and replace them with unblemished clothes to lavish us with mercy and peace and love, just like he does all those who believe. So even though Jude, and finishing up here, said in the beginning, hey, I want to talk about our common salvation, but something more important comes up. He can't help himself, because look how he finishes the book of Jude. Verse 24, 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. How to contend to the end, I think, is just to surrender. We contend to the end by surrendering. It should be obvious that we can't do any of this stuff by our own strength. We need supernatural empowerment. Jude ends it this way for a reason. There's a final use of the word keep in here. It's not exactly the same word, turns out, as the five times it was used above, but it's a similar idea. It's more often translated as guard or protect or keep watch over. It's the same word that John uses in 1 John 5 where he says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. After all these opportunities that Jude has given us to stumble in the book of Jude, here in the end he shifts the focus up to our only hope of not stumbling. He's able to stop us and he will if we surrender to him. I'm going to read a poem that A.W. Tozer quotes. We're going to end in prayer. Only to sit and think of God, oh, what a joy it is. To think the thought, to breathe the name, earth has no higher bliss. Father of Jesus, love's reward. What rapture it will be, prostrate before thy throne to lie and gaze and gaze on thee. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you this morning for Jude. And uh, we praise you, Lord, for giving us the mercy that we don't deserve. And we thank you for calling us to be that mercy in other people's lives. Um, Lord God, thank you that your answer to contention and divisiveness is truth and mercy and love. We give you all the praise and the glory this morning. Lord, to our only God and Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.